Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Someone can shout out the page number. 984, if you've got one of our church Bibles, I think. Colossians chapter 3. If you were here last week, uh, we were in the middle of chapter 3. We're working through this letter to the Colossian church. And as we reach the middle of chapter 3, we had this really warm and tender for a tender reminder from God in his word to his people. Remember in verse 12 last week, we were being encouraged to put on Christ and Paul reminded us of who we are. He said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And I just want to start our time back there this afternoon, reminding us of that, that one word, which carries so much weight for God's people. You are God's beloved. You know, when we baptise Tony in a couple of weeks, it takes us back to Jesus' baptism. And we read in the Gospels, as Jesus was baptised, he comes out of the water and we hear the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You heard that before? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that same word is written here for God's people. Chosen ones, holy and beloved. And we talked last week about how we are associated with the Father. We are found in the presence of the Father because we are united to him through the Son. And what is true of the Son is now true of God's people. And so as the Father says to his Son, as he comes out of those waters of baptism, you are my beloved Son. I am well pleased with you. He says exactly the same thing to you if you are a son of the Father. To you if you are a daughter of the Father. You are my beloved. And I'm pleased with you. Just, just sit in that just for a moment this afternoon because some of us need to hear that. Some of us need to hear that word from the Father this afternoon. I love you. I'm pleased with you. And God isn't stupid, right? He's seen what you've done this week. He knows what you said. He knows your thoughts. He knows the depths of your heart. And he still says to you this afternoon, son, I love you. Daughter, I love you. You're my beloved. And I'm pleased with you. The same affection that the father has for his son, he has for you if you are found in him. And... You know, a song that we sang before, we put the, the bridge in. Sometimes we don't sing it. Um, <coughs> you're a good, good father. Thanks, Elizabeth. I lost that for a minute. You're a good, good father. You're a good, good father. You're a good, good father. And I'm loved by you. And I want us to be convinced of that this afternoon. We need to be convinced about that with what we're about to step into. We need to be convinced that God loves us and that he's a good father and that he's for us. He is for his people. He has your back 100%. He is with you and he is never going to leave you. He's your father. He's pleased with you. And he loves you. And because he is who he is, 
Because he, he is all the things that we know that he is. He is good. He is perfect. He is merciful. He is kind. He is altogether lovely. He is altogether absolutely for us. Because he is all of those things. We can be absolutely convinced this afternoon, folks, without doubt, that everything he says in here, everything he calls us to in here, is good for us. Without exception. Everything he calls us to in here, every act of obedience he calls us to walk in, every instruction he gives his people, because he is a good father, because he loves us, because his goodness is pure, we can be convinced that whatever he asks us to do in here, it is for our good. And it is leading us into paths of righteousness. The Father never leaves us into to paths that are, that are not going to be for our good. He never leads us into pastures that are dry and dirty and, and aren't going to quench our souls like we were talking about before. He is always leading us into paths of righteousness and paths of joy and paths of peace. So wherever he is about to call us into here, even if it grates up against us, even if it feels Ah, I'm, that just doesn't feel right. We can be convinced because he is a good father that it is good for us. And if we walk in obedience to his commands, he is going to lead us into paths of righteousness, joy, and peace. Now with that in mind, let me read to us Colossians chapter <coughs> 3, verses 18 through to verse 1 of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me pray for us again. Father, we thank you that these are your words to us. Thank you that because you are a good father, we can trust that you will only ever give us what is good. And so open our eyes, open our hearts to receive truth this afternoon. Help us to work through past experience and and past relationships and present relationships and to, and to hear this truth afresh this afternoon. Help us to know what it is to walk in light of your word in ways that, that aren't burdensome, in ways that, that don't exhaust us, but in ways that lead into righteousness, joy and peace. Lord Jesus, we believe that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that you would change us Make us to be more like you, we ask, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, we're heading towards the end of this beautiful letter and I hope you've been enjoying it, Colossians. It's been 
a joy to be able just to slow down and work our way through. Andy's going to land the plane for us next week. Andy's got the whole of chapter four. All right? But can I just give you a bit of a, a sneak preview? It's going to be great. It's going to be really good. If you look at chapter four, lists full of names and like, who are these people? There is something incredibly beautiful going on here. If you have a chance before next week, go away, read it, try and, try and learn the names, try and help Andy out a little bit because there's some interesting ones in there. But be prepared actually just to hear something more about a list of names. Paul is going to round things off and give some farewells and give some closing instructions as he finishes off in, off in chapter four. And, and really this portion that we're in here at the end of chapter three is, is the end of a, of a teaching that Paul's been building across three chapters, all the way from chapter one to chapter three. And it's interesting that, you know, the argument for, for where we've, we've finished off here or the teaching that where we finished off here started all the way back in chapter one when Paul was teaching us about, about the invisible God. Remember that? He is the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we had this picture of the cosmic supreme Christ, the one ruling and reigning over all things, the one holding all of creation in existence, the one who has authority over everything, the one who by and through and for all things were made. Remember that, that kind of big, glorious, cosmic, galactic Christ that we saw who came down, condescended and was crucified for us who through his shed blood saved a people to himself, the one who is the head of the body, the church. And for a few chapters, we just got this glorious picture of Christ and who he is and the work that he's done. And then in the last few weeks, we've seen the the real application of what it looks like to live in light of that Christ. Okay, this is who he is. And now this is what it looks like to live in light of who he is. And we started a couple of weeks back looking at it, at being a people who put off sin. And then last week we looked at it being a people who put on Christ. But it almost feels like a bit of an anticlimax to finish where we finished. After seeing the glory of who Christ is, after seeing his work in the church, after hearing this, this great power for him to help us in our sin and to clothe us in his righteousness. I don't know about you, but it just feels like a strange place to finish by saying, okay, now wives, submit to your husbands. <coughs> Children, obey your parents. Bond servants, or we'd say, you know, if we kind of put it into context for us today, employees or workers, obey, obey your boss. It might feel like it's a little bit out of context, a little bit of a strange thing for Paul to pop in here after everything he said. But actually, these verses that we've just read, folks, they are the perfect conclusion to a chap that has been painting a beautiful life, a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live a life that is oriented, oriented, I'm struggling, towards Christ. Let me say that again. Chapter three has been building a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live a life that is oriented to Christ. And this is really the nuts and bolts, folks. Because what Paul is doing is he's saying, okay, be a people who do these three movements, who, who put off sin, who put on Christ, who pursue Christ likeness. And what he's doing here is putting us into the places where we so often are, re- are frequenting. I am struggling, aren't I? It's because I had coffee before and my lips are sticking. He's putting us into the context where we spend most of our time. If you're married, most of your time is spent with your spouse. Or if you're you're a father or a mother, most of your time will be spent, thanks mate, with your children. If you work a job, most of your time is going to be spent in the workplace. And so Paul is saying, okay, well, let's go there. 
Let's look at what it looks like for you to be someone who has your face turned towards Christ in those spaces, in those places, with those people. listen on the, on the podcast he puts us into those places so we can best understand what it looks like to reflect the beauty of Christ in our daily life and what we learn is that it looks like this willing submission and loving sacrifice That's what it looks like to be a Christian in our daily life. In these different spaces, it looks like willing submission and loving sacrifice. The words there that we see in those verses, submit to your husbands, obey your parents, obey your earthly masters, submit and obey, they're they're pretty much the same word. And I don't know about you, but when we hear that word, particularly the word submit, and particularly when we come across it in the scriptures, like quite often we, we go to the negative. We think, oh, this is something that this is something that is going to be difficult. This is something that feels, I don't know, just rubs up against me a little bit. The call to submit just feels, I don't know, it just feels like it, it, it grinds against me a little bit. It's going to feel a bit difficult. But remember what we said right at the start, our Father only ever calls us into what is good. He only ever calls us into paths of righteousness, paths that are going to increase our joy and increase our peace. And so the instructions that we have here are going to do that, folks. Godly submission is a path to life. It is a path to peace. Firstly, I've got three points that I just want to walk us through. And the first reason is this. The first reason that we see that godly submission is good for us is that it reflects Christ. Godly submission reflects Christ. So as we read these verses here and we come across these different roles, wives, husbands, fathers, parents, children, workers, masters, they're the the roles that really stand out to us. They're the the things that jump out as we walk through these verses. But, But don't miss how central Christ is to these verses. Seven times in these verses, the Lord is mentioned or or our master or Christ. He is central to Christian marriage. He is central to a Christian home. He is central to a Christian being fruitful in the workplace. And he's central to understanding what godly submission looks like. If you're a wife or a child or an employee, this passage is calling you to submit. And you might think, well, I don't want to submit. Submission is below me. I'm all right, thank you. Like that's old school. That's first century stuff. Or you might actually believe as you read this and as you hear it being read out, you might think, okay, why submit to your husbands? Yeah, okay, I believe that. Theologically, it's true. I believe it because God said it, so it must be true. You might believe it theologically, but actually you might not practice it at home. You might not live it out in reality. You might read, okay, children obey your parents or fathers don't provoke your children. Think, okay, theologically, I can see that that is true, but you never put it into practice. Or you might think, yeah, I I understand that I have to submit to my boss in work. I understand that theologically. But maybe you're the person that Paul mentions here that as soon as the boss turns his back, you just slow down and start being a bit sloppy with your work. And then when he comes back in the room, that's when you really start working hard. 
See, we might understand it theologically, but we also need to live it out practically, folks. Here's what submission is. Submission is to willingly follow the leading of another. That's what it is to willingly follow the leading of another. And so wives, in verse 18, God's word is calling you to willingly follow the leading of your husband. You're being called to willingly follow his lead. And that doesn't mean that he's superior over you. You know, when you come to tricky parts of the Bible like this, the rule is always to do this. Let scripture interpret scripture. So don't read wives submit to your husbands and think, oh, well, God's telling me that the wives are down here and, and husbands are up here. That isn't what he's saying. Allow scripture to interpret scripture. And what we see right at the start of the Bible in Genesis is that man and woman are created equal in the image of God. And God hasn't changed that. Husbands and wives are equal. They have equal dignity. They have equal value. They have equal worth. But God in his wisdom has called husbands to lead in the marriage. He has. You think of any institution in the world that tries to function without leadership. What happens? It descends into chaos. Someone needs to lead and God has called husbands to lead in the marriage. That doesn't mean that they're superior. doesn't mean that they're better It means that God has given them a distinct role to lead in that place. Children, verse 20, are called to willingly follow the leading of their parents. That doesn't mean that parents are superior than their kids. It means that there is a difference in role. It means that children don't rule the home. The parents do. Verse 22, employees are told to willingly follow the leading of their employers. Not just when they're looking but sincerely, heartily. And that doesn't mean that employers are more superior than employees, but it does mean that we should submit to them, willingly following their lead. Now, if you're hearing that call and you're resisting the call to submit in those areas, it is more than likely because you have a distorted view of what submission is. Submission is willingly following the leading of another but it isn't an action of inferiority. Actually, submission, true submission, godly submission is a beautiful picture of Christ-likeness because that is exactly what Christ does. The Son of God submits to the Father willingly, joyfully. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's submitting to the will of his father. Hebrews 5, 8, talking about Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He obeyed his father. He submitted himself to the law of God. So the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, submits to the father willingly and constantly. He did that in his life. He did it in his his death. And even now in his ascended rule, He is submitted to the Father. So if you hear a call in here, folks, for you to submit, you're in good company. Christ Jesus himself submits himself to the Father. And if it's good for Jesus, surely it's good for us. Maybe one of the reasons that submission can often feel like a struggle is because it it so often feels contrary to how the world tells us to live. Like, Wives submit to your husbands. No one out there is saying that. Like if you walk into Waterstones and pick off a book from the bookshelf about 
about marriage. No book is going to tell you, okay, here's what you need for a good marriage. Wives submit to husbands. No one's saying that. No one's even saying, okay, if you want to be, be a, a child and kind of live your best life now, do what your parents say. No one's saying that. Two observations, one biblical observation and, and maybe a societal observation to help us here. The first one, biblically, these are God's words. Culture might say, no, 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 that's, that's old school, that's, that's restrictive, but these are God's words. So let's be really careful, really careful if we're planning on saying, well, this isn't right. Or, or actually, no, that's, that's outdated. Or actually, I've got a better way for us to live. Now, these are God's words. And, and if we can trust him to hold the planet in the sky, if we can trust him to hold everything together, then surely we can trust him to tell us what is good for our marriage, what is good for our home, what is good for us in the workplace. And some people might come to him and say, well, you know, Paul wrote this how many years ago? What, 2,000 years ago? So it's cultural. So Paul was just talking to, to the church in Colossae. He was just for them, it doesn't apply to us today. We've graduated from that. We're 2000s, 2000 years on. Like, wives don't need to submit to their husbands now. We don't need to submit to our parents. We don't need to submit to anyone. We can be our own authority. Well, the problem is there is nothing cultural in the argument. Verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Paul is tying the instruction to Christ, not culture. And actually the Colossian church, well, not, maybe not the church, but the folks around the church would have laughed at these instructions. Women, children, slaves, they were nothing in the Roman Empire. They had no rights in the Roman Empire. They were the lowest of the low. But yet, yeah, look what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Fathers, don't provoke your children. You don't want them to be discouraged. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, chapter 4, verse 1. Actually, this was revolutionary stuff. No one said anything like that back then. Godly submission isn't a cultural command, folks. It is the word of God for us. That's the biblical observation. Here's the societal observation. See, our Western society would laugh at these instructions. They would say they're outdated. They would say they're irrelevant. They would say that they stand in the way of us living our best life now. Like I was talking to a lady this week and she was sharing about uh, some trauma counselling that she was having and she was struggling her way through and the counsellor came to a point of saying this, okay, if you want to find healing, if you want to push through, this is what you need to do. Be selfish. That was the professional advice. Be selfish. Think about yourself. This is literally what he said to her. Put your husband to one side. Put your kids to one side. Forget about your job. Think about yourself. This is about you, all right? Be selfish. That was the professional advice that she was getting. We might think, well, that's crazy. Who on earth would say that? The whole world is saying that, folks. Maybe not in those pointed words, but the whole world is telling us you are the center of the world. The mantra for life in our society is live your best life now. And the way that you do that is you place yourself at the center of all things and push anything that gets in your way out of the way. Don't submit to your husband. Don't submit to your parents. Do whatever you want to do in terms of work. But as we look out to culture, how is that going? 
more marriages are falling apart than ever. Young people are in a crisis. There's more job dissatisfaction than ever. And the world will tell us, you know, if you want true freedom, kick off the restraints. Just do whatever you want. That's freedom, but it isn't. Actually, God's word says to us that we need boundaries. We need rules for living. We have scripture like Psalm 16, which says, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. What David means by that is God has given us boundaries to live in. God has given us lines around us in his word, ways for us to live. And the place that he has, he has kept us in, the place that we are fenced into, isn't a place of restriction. It is a place of flourishing. It is a place of growth. It is a place of peace. It is a place of joy. That is where the green pasture is. And if we think the way to freedom is to kick down the fences and go wandering off, we are walking into danger. We are walking into chaos. We are walking away from where the living water is. God's instruction for submission is not about stealing your joy. It is a path to joy. And we find ourselves in good company when we submit in a godly way. We find ourselves with Christ himself. Secondly, godly submission should be in a context of Christ-like love. See, with each of the instructions to submit, there's an instruction for those who are being submitted to. So wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Workers, uh, obey your masters. But alongside all of those, there is an instruction to those that they are submitting to. Verse 19, husbands, love your wife and don't be harsh with them. Verse 21, fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters, be just and fair. And so the expectation is that godly submission happens in a context of love. That's clear even just from these passages. We are called to submit to one another, but we're called to submit in a culture, in an environment of love. You know, before we get to wives submit to your husbands, verse 18, there's 1,489 words before that in this letter. And each one of those 1,489 words, I counted them, are building this picture of the beauty of Christ. We've seen it, haven't we, over the last few weeks? This beautiful picture of who Christ is and this call for us to live in light of that Christ and the call for God's people to put on Christ likeness, to live in the light of who Christ is. And so the expectation is that when, when wives are called to submit to their husbands, they are Christ-like men. Because they put on Christ-likeness. They put off sin. They are men who have hearts who are full of Christ and they are living in the light of Christ. They are men who, like Christ, are building an environment of safety and protection and provision and love and stability. The assumption is that as wives are called to submit to their husbands, they are submitting to men who are faithful, who love peace who love compassion, who are kind, who are humble, who are meek, who are patient. They are men who pursue the joy of their wives. They are men, as they are called to here, who aren't, what, who aren't harsh sorry, with their wives, but are consistently, consistently gentle. That's the expectation. That's the kind of man that these wives are being called to submit to because that is how Paul has walked us through in this letter. You are called to submit in a context of Christ-like love. You know, for Elizabeth and I, we've been married coming up 14 years. That's right, isn't it? And um, I'd say probably most of the decisions that we make in our marriage, um, Elizabeth makes them. 
I don't know, like 95%, would that be fair? That's not an exaggeration. 95% of the decisions we make as a married couple, Elizabeth leads in it. But there are times in our marriage where we come to the big decision. <coughs> and it's like that fork in a road, you know what I mean? And, and we can go one of two ways. And these are life decisions, decisions that are going to determine which direction we go, where we're going to go in ministry. And we've had a number of those over the years. And a number of times we've come to a fork in the road and we've disagreed. Elizabeth wants to go one way, I want to go another way. And in those moments, God has given me a role to lead Elizabeth. Even if she disagrees. Even if she's uncomfortable. To prayerfully lead Elizabeth. And can I just say this from experience, unfortunately. It is much easier for her to follow me when I'm living like Christ. When I'm putting on Christ, when I'm putting away sin, it is much easier. In fact, it is her joy to follow me, even if she doesn't agree with the direction that we're going in. It is her joy to follow me if I am modeling Christ to her, if I am being kind to her, if I'm being gentle, if I'm being humble, if I'm being patient, if I'm not being harsh with her, but I'm bringing her alongside. It is her joy to come with me as we go in that direction. Like, who wouldn't want to follow someone who is modeling Christ? And when we look at parents, the call here, children, obey your parents in everything. This pleases the Lord. Think about our children. What child wouldn't look up to a father who is modeling Christ? What child wouldn't look up to a father who, as we see in verse 21, isn't provoking them, but is encouraging them? Let me just say this to us who are dads in the room, or maybe who are going to be dads in the future. Don't be harsh with your children. Don't allow the tone of your home to be one of discouragement. Make the melody of your home with your children one of encouragement. Like pull them up when they do wrong things, but more often than not, sing their praises. Tell your children the great things that they are doing. Encourage them, get behind them, support them. Call them out when they do something and they, they produce something, when they bring home that piece of artwork that's, you know, is what it is. Like celebrate it. Make much of them. Make the melody of your home encouragement and joy. Like we had a, a, a moment last week and I was really challenged over this. I was out for a walk in the park with the two kids and Tony. And we were just walking along. Tony and I were chatting and the kids were ahead and they were, um, they were walking. We call it the exercise path. Do you know the bit? I mean, there's like monkey bars and the exercise things around the path. And we got to the monkey bars and Ruthie nailed it. She just jumps up and she can go straight across. Micah can never do it. He's just too small and he's been blessed with my kind of frame. He's just not got the strength to to carry himself over. So we get to the monkey bars, Ruthie nails it and Micah jumps up and I'm like, go on son, you can do it. And Micah's like, I can't, I can't do it. And my reaction is, all right, all right, that's fine. (laughs) Tony goes up to Micah and says, you can do it, Micah. I believe in you. And I'm like, oh, okay, I've missed the trick here. And Tony says to Micah, you can do whatever you put your mind to. And Micah's like, okay. Tony grabs Micah and pulls him up so he can reach the handlebars. And off he goes one by one. Makes it all the way to the end. He encouraged my son. And I walked away and I thought, man, I should have got there in front of him. He stole my glory. That should have been me. 
I should have been encouraging him. That should be the culture. That should be the temperature. That should be just consistently in our homes as parents, folks, encouraging our children, getting behind them. Yes, pointing out when they need correction and discipline. But their daily bread from us should be, well done, son. Well done, daughter. You're doing great. Keep going. And parents are reflecting Christ, which kids wouldn't want to follow them. What about employees? Let's go there. Employees or line managers or team leaders, anyone who has responsibility in their workplace of creating a culture, are you wearing the Christ-like characteristics that we've seen in this letter? Are you, as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, are you fair and are you just? We've got a friend, some of you know him, who runs a building company uh, and he's a Christian and he called his company JCIL, Jesus Christ is Lord. What a great name for, terrible name actually for a, for a building company. But that's what he called it, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he just started off small. It was him and his dad working. And he's grown uh, as the, the business has grown. He's brought more people on. And he brings people on who are struggling for work. And often he's working at a loss. But he keeps on doing it because he's creating a culture of fairness and justice and and he wants to be kind and he wants to be generous and sacrificial. Every morning as they work, they all come together, all the workers, some of them are Christians, some of them aren't, and they have a prayer meeting in the home that they're doing renovations on. They come before God, they pray, and they're creating this culture, this this environment of dependence on God, a Christ-like culture as he leads, as he brings other people in. Who wouldn't want to work for a man like that? Who wouldn't want to work for a man who was carrying the characteristics of, of Christ, who is reflecting the goodness of Christ? If that is you, if you have responsibility in the workplace, I encourage you to strive for that. Strive to make it easy for your employees to submit and to follow. Godly submission should be in a context of Christ-like love. As we finish, let me just, let me just give us a, a dose of reality. Sometimes that won't be the case. Sometimes we will find ourselves in a position where we're called to submit and there won't be an environment of Christ-like love. Sometimes wives, you will be with husbands who aren't carrying the characteristics of Christ. Sometimes children, we will find ourselves, your children will find themselves in a context where their parents aren't carrying the characteristics of a Christ-like love. Same in the workplace. Well, what do we do? What do we do if that's the case? Well, if that person who you're called to submit to is encouraging you to sin, don't submit. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. Don't ever submit to someone if they're encouraging you to to walk away from Jesus or encouraging you to break his command or encouraging you to submit. You don't submit to those people. And if they're using submission as a front for abuse or coercion or manipulation, then don't submit to that person. Get help. But more than likely, the norm for you will be that it's probably maybe a spouse who isn't a Christian or your parents who might not be Christians or or your employer, not every employer is like my friend Luke. Most employers aren't Christians. Or maybe the person that you're called to submit to is a Christian, but they're not being very Christ-like in that moment. Like that's probably more likely going to be our experience. What do we do then? 
Well, folks, we still submit. Resist the desire to rule over your husband or parent or employer. You're still to willingly follow their lead. But know this, and here's the last point, godly submission is first submission to the Lord. Before we submit to anyone else, we submit to Jesus. See, the problem in Colossae in this church that Paul is writing to is that they were submitting to the world too easily. You might remember back in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul challenges them on that very thing. They were submitting to rules and regulations. Remember that? Don't eat, don't touch, don't wear this, don't wear that. And it's not that it's wrong to follow rules or to submit. Like clearly we've seen that it's good to submit, but it is wrong to submit to anyone over Christ. That's why we read in verse 23 of chapter 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When we submit to the rule of others, whether it's a husband, a parent or a boss, we should see that ultimately we are serving the Lord. Our Christ-like submission is fitting to the Lord, verse 18. He's pleased with it, verse 20. And eternal life lies ahead of us as our reward, verse 24. So submit to those that you are called to submit to willingly and heartily, even when it's difficult, because ultimately you are serving Christ. He is your Lord and he is your master. And as I wrap up, let me just say this. I know the call of this passage is hard for a lot of us. There are cultural pressures that are pulling us away from this kind of obedience. Our marriages are far from perfect. I know there are broken marriages in this room. Some of us have terrible bosses and we genuinely find it really difficult to submit to them. If you're a Christian, go into this week knowing that you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ and he's pleased with you. And if you're struggling, look back at the start of this chapter and remember that you can't do this on your own. You need Christ. You need a heart that is filled with him. You need your affection stirred for him. So look to him. And if you're not a Christian, you need to know that your first priority isn't to follow a husband, isn't to follow parents, isn't to follow a boss. Your first priority is to follow Jesus. Men and women will fail you, but he will never let you down. So turn to him, follow him, and submit to him. Let's pray.